Yes, hello. Our guest today is an entrepreneur responsible for creating and co-owning the classic game arcade in downtown Portland called Ground Control. He and I had a fantastic conversation, starting with his time working as an engineer at Intel, his history in studio recording, creating and performing electronic music, and of course, all about the venue he co-owns downtown. He is one of those guys where every new sentence out of his mouth is something new he tried, conquered, experienced, or achieved. I mean, we spent like an hour after we stopped recording discussing how he is involved in testing and racing cars at Portland International Raceway. I had no idea until <laughs> the episode was already over. Uh, this guy has done so much with his life. Here is my friend, Neil Bradley. Well, I appreciate you coming down. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. We have already spent a good 10 minutes talking about awesome stuff. Unfortunately, we weren't recording, uh, so we're going to start now. <laughs> but uh, I guess let's go back. You said uh, in the 80s you got a computer science degree. I, you're giving me too much credit. Okay. Um, I got into computers, for okay. a better, better way of, do, of doing it. Um, so I grew up in the 80s. As a you know, as a teen, and we had Commodore sixty fours, TRC Model Ones, Apple Twos, those classic computers where you kind of had to know everything from top to bottom. And uh, I wanted to be a rock star. I wasn't really interested in computers, and I realized you know that's probably the next best thing I could I could do is get into this computer thing because you know that's part of video games, it's part of life, and it's just going to become prolifer in the future be proliferated so much that uh, it seemed like to me like it'd be a good career trajectory and it was also interesting to me just I'm fascinated by things that are puzzles you know so I used to play with Legos and and Capsella and and Tinker Toys and mm -hmm. stuff like that so anything that was sort of complicated where I could build my own thing uh, was very interesting and you can do that with hardware computer hardware you can just add more memory, you could add more disks, you could add whatever you wanted, you could write your own code, you could try it this way, you could try it that way. So it was, it, it, it became fascinating to me. Well, that wasn't really quite a popular thing back then. I mean, were you involved with buying some like the early Apple, I, I, I mean, I might be going way too far back, maybe that was in the 70s, where they would sell like physical boards and people would take them I'm a little too young for that, but yeah, that was that was the '70s. Th yeah. That was Apple One yeah, days. Yeah, right? that was where the, you got the board. Yeah, right. You didn't even get a keyboard to go with it. In fact, that was one of the complaints about the the Byte magazine or the Byte the Byte store at the time. The, the, the stories the Apple story goes is that you know uh, Jobs and Wozniak tried to sell just the board to yeah. the to the computer company, and they're like, well, this isn't any good because you have to add all the other stuff like the TV and and stuff like that. So make this complete, and then that that gave birth to the Apple II. Mm -hmm. um, so I grew up with those. But that's a little bit before my time. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, for, I first got my first computer was a, a TRS-80 Model 1. And that was in 1978. And I was a nine-year-old kid back then. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with it. What, what could that computer do in 1978? <laughs> Not much. Type text, right? I, it was all text. It was all text. And, and the characters, to do graphics, you could use the, the actual characters themselves. They had graphic characters where you had six, literally six pixels per character. Mm -hmm. So... If you wanted to make up something, you have to make them, you have to find the right character, the right characters, group them together to make, you know, a spaceship or something. Kind of like they do like on Reddit, people will put a bunch of characters together to make something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah and there, they used to do ASCII art where they take text and they make these huge printouts of things. It, it, look it up. It's called ASCII art. Okay. And it's, it's 
fascinating what some of the artists would do with this sort of stuff. And so, it, so what, what did you do with it though? When you're nine years old in 1978, what? Most of the time, is stumbling around in the dark because you had no internet. Yeah. Right. You had, uh, you had books you could buy. You had magazines, right? So I spent a lot of time with the 80 microcomputing magazine for the TRCD and Byte magazine and things like that. And they they would like literally have programs you could type in. They they'd sell you the magazine. You could type in the the program and play whatever game or program or, or whatever whatever piece of information that they they want to convey to you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's largely how I learned computers. It okay. wasn't a scientific approach because computer science degrees, I was too young to go to college at the time. Um, computer science degrees were not a thing yet. Not not wide a wide thing where now you can go a million places and learn about computers. Yeah. Um, and so I was... I fortunately had a lot of good mentors in the 80s. I had uh, people who were electronic engineers. I had uh, uh, friends with professors at uh, Oregon. At the time, it was the Oregon Graduate uh, Center. Um, and I had a lot of influence in, in people, a lot of mentors. In fact, I'm still friends with most of my, my closest friend. Uh, you know, I've known him 36 years, and he's taught me a ton. You know, so. It was people that helped me back then. It wasn't wasn't that, but I didn't I didn't get I didn't get a degree. Okay, I didn't get a degree. You were just self taught, and yep. you decided that it was going to become some sort of revolutionary item. That I mean, did you look at it from a business standpoint? Like, no, you no. just thought it was cool. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, uh, because you know it, what got me on the track was seeing Star Wars in yeah. the theater with my dad. Yeah, and he said I, I was I was fascinated by R two D two because at the time you know I didn't realize that it was a you know, it was Kenny Baker in, <laughs> in an outfit. Um, but my dad was saying, well, you know, the core of that is a computer. I'm like, really? I remember, I remember just like having that revelation. He was telling me, yeah, robots have computers in them. Uh -huh. I'm like, really? And that was what did it to me. That, that was like, wow, I can make it do this. I can make it control this. I could, it, it, it became interesting to me on a really wide scale. And video games were just coming up at the same time. The, the same, um, uh, all the video games are all computers. Mm -hmm. Same thing. So did you get involved with learning how to code? Yes. Yeah. Very early on. So started off with basic. It's that, that was like the, the entry level language that everybody learned. Everybody had a variant of a basic. Um, it was very simple. You just type it in. And then I, I moved very quickly from there to assembly language because the assembly language is, is writing code that the processor directly executes. Um, whereas the, the basic language is at the time was interpreted. It, the computer would look at your statement and then go do what you wanted it to do. And it was very, the, the performance, there's a radical performance difference between basic and an assembly language. Okay. So that's how you did it. What, what was the so. goal with it though? Was it to get a job writing for a software developer or what were you trying to do? No, I wasn't at the time I was, you know, as growing up, it was just an interest. It was something that was fascinating to me and it was, a, it was a puzzle. Um, and I wanted to learn how everything I could about it. Um, but when I really got into computers, I got my first job. I was a technician. I was a, um, phone tech. I answered phones at Intel. So literally doing tech support for boards you would add in to the computer. Okay. You know, back then the computers, you know, if you wanted a fax capability, you'd have to add a board. If you wanted sound, you had to add a board. And you'd have interrupt conflicts and all kinds of things that we none of us have to deal with anymore. But um, it was, it taught me a perspective of, you know, user experience. It was a really valuable thing to do. And it got me into to Intel as a, uh, as an entry level uh, technician. I was an hourly phone phone answering person. Well, that's pretty cool because <laughs> typically the type of mind 
that works on computers or understands programming, they're not typically a people person. So it sounds like you kind of had both skills. If you were answering phones and talking to people, you kind of had to be engaging, right? Yeah. Um, yeah people, computer people tend to have a, a reputation of being kind of antisocial and not good with people. Um, depending upon who you talk to, I'm, I'm sure there's people who say that I'm not good with people. <laughs> You're doing all right right now. I, I think it's I think it's true with anybody pretty much. But it, it's a skill. It's a valuable skill that you you, you kind of have to learn. And and the people who tended to be antisocial gravitated towards that profession for that very reason. And especially people who are who are on the on the autistic spectrum who turned out to be excellent engineers. Yeah, because they're incredibly focused, great detail. Um, and some of the best testers on the planet are people who are on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they tend to not have developed social skills. Mm -hmm. um, but they're uh, fantastic, fantastic people. And that's kind of the calling that we used to. So I worked with a lot of quirky people mm -hmm. <laughs> and some really great ones too. So what so, what <clears throat> time frame was this? What, what year did you work at Intel? I started Intel 1989, in September of 89. Yeah. Okay. And I grew up through there doing... Uh, you know, I started off in test, in test engineering. So I, I went from answering phones. Um, I I was a little bit of a prankster back then. You know, I didn't really like mature until probably my early thirties. <laughs> so um, we would, I would do things like if I want to learn an application or I want to learn how something would work, I'd write a program to go do it, to just try something out. And so I thought it would be funny to write a program that would fake bad key, uh, bad keyboards. Oh, so, no. and I took this program, this, it's a terminate, what they used to call terminate and stay resident program. It was, it's a program you would load that would kind of just be there in the background and run. This is, this is before, you know, real operating system days. This is DOS, MS DOS days, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, then all of a sudden the, the tech group at Intel was getting inundated with people asking for new keyboards. So I thought that was funny. Um, the, the funny, I think the, probably the, the, the story that got me the most attention was a time when they put antivirus software on our computer. Mm -hmm. So we were answering phones, we were trying customer scenarios, we were reconfiguring computers, trying to recreate whatever problem they've got. And you would, the system would lock up a lot, so you'd, you'd have to reset. So the land group at the time was three people. There was no IT department. They, they were what became what we know now as, as IT. Um, had a, I had a program I wrote, or sorry, Backing up, the um, antivirus software was just starting to come out, and and they thought it was a good idea that every time you logged into the computer, that into the LAN, into the network, that you would it would do a scan, a complete scan of your system. Okay. Okay. Well, depending on how much stuff you got on your hard drive, that's going to take 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. When you're on the phone with a customer, you, you try something that they want, and you reboot your system, and you're locked out for 15 or 20 minutes. Well, this got old, fast. We told them we can't work like this. And they just said, no, forget it. This is corporate policy. So I wrote a program that would intercept the, what they call the find first and find next functions inside DOS. So when you're traversing a directory, it says, oh, where are all the subdirectories? So it hid all the subdirectories. Okay. So I'd load my program in the startup script. The 
virus scanner would run, it would scan the, you know, 100 files that are in your root directory, and then that would be it because it wouldn't find any of the other subfolders. Mm. Okay. So it would boot up very quickly. Well, it turns out I wasn't the only person in the in this division that had <laughs> this problem. And the engineers were, lot, were having the same issues because they would develop things and things would lock up and you'd have to restart your system all the time. And this got... The, I got on the engineer's radar at Intel because I wrote this utility that bypassed corporate software to protect the company. So I was kind of a bad boy. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like they'd probably be pretty pissed at you if you're releasing they, stuff they while were. you're on the tech support staff. They were. <laughs> they were. And and it was funny because I had the engineers. That's how I got introduced to some of the engineers over in the in the in the communications group. Well, and, how how were you distributing this without the internet? Uh, floppies. You were sending customers 3.5-inch floppy disks with this? Well, this is just around Intel. Oh, okay. Yeah, so okay. th this was only the, the network around Intel. Um, but I would just, we'd hand them around on a floppy disk, and what happens is that person would give that person a copy, and he'd get a copy, and he'd get a copy, and it went all over the company. So I had engineers coming over, introducing themselves to me, and say, hey, I'd like a copy of your program. I'm having a massive productivity hit. And so uh, this went on for about a week, and then I got called in to with my boss and my boss's boss and the head of the, the network division saying, you know, you can get fired from this. You're violating corporate security and blah, 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 and putting computers at risk and blah. It, it, it just, I got a, I got a tongue lashing for it. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time that my, it caught the attention of engineering. So that's how I got into doing engineering work. Um, and so, so you turned something that should have gotten you fired into you got a promotion. Promotion is not really the right word, but I should say it it, it got the right people saying, hey, this guy's kind of a, of a geek and he likes this sort of stuff. So anyway, my second level manager said, thank you very much for being creative with your solutions. Um, but next time when it deals with corporate security, come talk to us first. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't take matters into your own hands, right? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> so. kind of, that's kind of like when Google or Facebook put out these, uh, hackathons or whatever, where they, they invite people to hack their code because mm -hmm. they want to find out where the, um, inconsistencies are. Mm -hmm. And then they, they give those guys jobs. Mm -hmm. And they, the weaknesses. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> right. I mean, who better to, to test your security than a thief. Yeah. <clears throat> so. All right, so then you transitioned into engineering. Yes. And what 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 was that like? Um, well, first of all, I was doing test engineering. So that means that I was the guy that wrote all the code that um, tested the boards out to make sure that they were working properly. We had this thing called the Outback. It was a it was basically where all the boards come back that were failure, the, doing failure analysis on these on these boards. And I had a I had a mentor there at Intel that was a hardware engineer. And he says, you have to look at this not only from a software perspective, but from a hardware perspective. And he taught me a lot about troubleshooting hardware and how to, how to, how to detect it in software. So he, he had me thinking sort of both in the software and the hardware domain. Um, his, uh, anyway, I wound up writing a lot of tests for, for validating data modems and, and memory cards. I mean, literally back then you had a card that was full length, plug that sucker in and gives you another two megabytes or another hmm. eight megabytes. Hmm. Mega, not giga, not tera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the scales were, the uh, scales were a little smaller back then. Um, and so that I did that for test engineering for a while and I kind of automated myself out of a job, meaning that I got, I got sick of, I didn't want to just sit there and just be a button pusher and testing things out one by one. So I wrote programs to test things in multiple ways. So that way I could set up four or five machines, have them test in parallel, and then that would free me up to do other things. Um, like it, what? Like work with the engineers and doing actual modem firmware, for, for okay. example. Um, okay. Device drivers, um, 
you know, doing optimization, system optimization was something that was very fascinating to me, um, optimizing programs to run faster, um, which is kind of a lost art now because everything is so fast yeah. and there's so much in, in terms of resources. Um, and then my first engineering job when they promoted me, so I was going to school at the time, I was going to Portland State University. So I have all my, my computer science classes and I have all my double E classes, but I don't have any of the electives and stuff like that. I got promoted to an engineer and this was in 1992. So I... I, I had no need to go back and go get the degree. So I never did. Yeah, I was gonna say, what were you trying to get a degree for? You already had the job. Exactly. Yeah. So I never did. And it hasn't slowed me down as far as I can tell. Um, I did have a couple of, couple of times I've interviewed for jobs that they said, we're not interested in talking to you because you don't have a degree, but that was in the 90s and it hasn't been since then, so. Well, how did that transition into ground control? <laughs> because for anybody who, who doesn't know, what is ground control? Ground control is a classic arcade and bar in downtown Portland. Okay. So how did you turn being an engineer at Intel into, do you own ground control? I am one of the owners of ground control. Okay. Um, I am the CFO. Okay. And the good, the, I'm very happy I have partners because the business is way bigger than one person in terms of just areas of focus. You've got the bar side, you've got the arcade side, you've got the revenue side, you've got the infrastructure side. There's there's multiple facets of, of running a, of an arcade slash bar that is, you know, we all have our focuses. And thankfully, and, you know, we all have our, we all have day jobs. So this is not a full-time gig for us. Um, this is something that we did on the side. Um, so the interesting thing about my background is the engineering part of it gave me the computer software and hardware perspective. I was also very much into video games. So I was already primed to have a business of my own, right, in, in, in that regard. Um, Ground Control originally was not started by us. We bought it. We okay. bought the business. It, was over, it used to be over in, on 12th Avenue. And um, it was, at the time, the business was a little uh, defocused. It, it did, hadn't figured out what it wanted to be yet. There was, it, because it was a, it was a, an arcade, it was a video rental store, it was a classic game console sales group, and it was a show venue, literally a show venue. For concerts? For small concerts, yes. Okay. So they couldn't quite figure out what their focus was. No. Um, it was, the, the, the prior owner was a uh, nice guy, nice guy, always uh, always friendly. He was he wanted to go off and be a rock star, so his he sold us the business. And in 2001, um, he started kind of chain rattling that he wanted to, I, I, I first of all started and met him um, because I was a patron of the place. And it's like, hey, classic arcade games. Um, and I went, I'd go to go to Grand Control quite often. And after a while, I was like, you know, your game selection is kind of stale. Um, how I had arcade games myself, I collected them. I had pinball machines and I had video games in a room of our house. And, and my wife was consistently saying, hey, you know, do something with these, right? And <laughs> so I said, okay, I worked out a deal with the, the prior owner, who's also named Neil, um, that I would put my games at ground control and then we would split the split the earnings. Wow. That's how we started. Okay. Um, and in 2001, he rumored that he wanted to sell the place. Um, I knew, I had a friend of mine who was a business partner. Um, I had another friend of mine, another, another friend of mine who was actually at the time was more of an acquaintance than a friend. And then he knew somebody else. So it was a, it was like, we all kind of thought, Hey, how about us going together as, as, as the owners and, uh, as in buying this place and then 
turning it into what it can be. Well, if you don't mind me asking, you don't have to say if you don't want to, but mm -hmm. what did that cost in 2001? What, what did you have to come up with? Well, it wasn't in 2001. So 2001 is when he wanted he wanted considerably more revenue than or more for the business than 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 we figured out that it was worth. Because we sat down on paper and said, well, what would it take for us to start our own place that's equivalent? Yeah. Right. And um, it was considerable. It was like a third of the price, four, quarter quarter of the price. Um, and after that, it, the the idea kind of died, and and we came back with an offer that he wasn't willing to to accept, which is fine. Um, a couple of years later, he was willing to accept it, and so that's when the talk started happening. And that was in March two thousand uh, two thousand three when we purchased the the goodwill of the business. Okay. So um, anyway, your question was how much? How much? How much originally was the was the business? Yeah. I think it was about fifty eight thousand dollars. Fifty-eight mm -hmm. for the building and everything? No, 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 no. This was for the goodwill of the business. This was the for the name for the name for the video games for the uh, the assets that were you know part of the business. So we didn't inherit the debt. We didn't inherit any other you know obligations that the business may have already had. Okay. So yeah, um, it was uh, and and we pulled our money. Yeah. Right? And at that time, you know, I took out, I took out a loan against my 401k at the time, which was really small and I didn't know how to manage money. And <laughs> it's cool though. You just said, let's go for it. Yeah. It wasn't like we sat down and said, you know, here's 50 things and this is how it's going to go. And this is what we're going to do with the business. It was kind of like, uh, let's buy an arcade. Okay. That's cool. You know, and we did. And over the years we refined the business, you know, we, we, we removed the, um, several things about the business immediately we took we took over um we got rid of the um what do you call it the uh the video rental <laughs> saw that one coming that, huh yeah big shock there yeah um got rid of that so we could add more games mm -hmm. okay so um my other business partners are both hardware and software engineers they're also uh industrial uh, what do you call it uh, commercial so they understand commercial buildings and things like okay. that so what's interesting is we're kind of a cast of characters um we have radically different personalities, but we all have kind of like overlap. We have, we have, we take care of different segments of the business. So I'm incredibly ignorant about some of the business because I have my partners that handle that sort of stuff and vice versa. So, and like I said, that gets back to my original statement, which was that the business is way bigger than one person. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't begin to, there, there's multiple facets of the business. There is the cost analysis. There is the, um, you know, the, the, the competitive analysis of things like alcohol, right? That's something that you have to, as, as I understand it, is very uh, cost conscious that you, you do, there are certain things that you do or you don't do uh, in terms of price, in terms of adjusting price, you don't just dial it up because you want more money um, because that'll have a negative effect on it. So yeah. there's a whole side of the business that I don't have a good grasp on, but you know, as far as the technology side, you know, like the, the security and the money and the, 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 uh, games and technology and things like that. That's something that I know really well. And we have one of the other partners is very well versed in hardware as well. Um, and so we do all of our, all of our own repairs on site. Cool. Wow. So, um, did that answer your question? <laughs> it answered a lot of questions. <laughs> so you came in there. Yep. Uh, it started in 2001, trying to, to figure out what you could do. Mm -hmm. Finally got things pushed through in 2003. Mm -hmm. You decided to eliminate the video rental portion. Did you continue doing shows? We did for a short period of time. And then we found out that pretty much that we, we had a stage at, at the old place. And the, even when we, this was at the, the 12th Avenue venue 12th and what we're 12th and older i think it's between between 12th and older. It's basically halfway on the 
halfway between blocks. What what what's in that location right now, or g general? I, I think it's a I think it's a pastry place. It's okay. a it's a it's a bakery okay. of some sort. Um, and so we moved from there down to Fifth and Cooch, which was right behind the Rosalind Theater. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's and that that's when things kind of took off. So we moved from the we only had one year left on the lease, so we moved down to uh, the five eleven. Uh, ground control, the, the the blue building that you probably have seen. Yeah. Um, and then that was our first venue. At the time, it was a, you know, we were looking around for different locations. We had um, different places around Portland. We we checked out East Side. We checked out West Side. And there was at the time down in this in in Old Town, there was a, a business called Backspace, which was a land gaming business. Um, and so it was it was we got in kind of on the ground floor. So we we got in pretty cheap. Pretty cheap rates, but it used to be the bar area of uh, of an old Mexican restaurant called Cisco and Ponchos. Okay. And so, you know, it 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 looked like a Mexican bordello <laughs> because of the, because of because of the style, like the staircase and stuff yeah. like that. It, it had that style, so we kept that bar and that staircase specifically because it's it's iconic. Yeah, but it's a port. It's a uniquely Portland thing. Yeah. Um, and we moved in there. We signed a we signed a I don't know it was a five year ten year lease. Um, and it was funny going through the lease and reading it because I I tend to be really kind of picky. You know, you saw how I I, I, I read <laughs> yeah. this I read this agreement here. Um, I did the same thing with with that. And and this was the the building that we moved in was built in 1900, and you literally could get down in if you there's a there's a trap door in the floor that you could go down into the to get into the tunnels to underneath the Shanghai Portland. tunnels I don't know if it's the Shanghai tunnels but you can kind of get in there and it's it's been bricked off now but and and it's sealed shut you can't get down there anymore but um that this is how this is how old of Portland building I was I was I was dealing with uh -huh. and um so that was kind of neat to see that yeah um, what's that like in terms of the plumbing and the various things that we had we had to redo it yeah. 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 So it was the, the bathrooms looked, I mean, like I said, it's seventies decor. Yeah. It, it, you wouldn't want to do that. So we were in there, we didn't have any money. And so we, we did it on the cheap as much as we could. Um, and we eventually remodeled, I think it was in 2009. So forgive me if I get some of the dates wrong. It's been 19 years. So, <laughs> um, the, uh, let's see, where are we going? Um, my train of thought. Um, That's the I was looking through the lease, mm -hmm. and the lease had stuff in it. I, I was having issues with it because it was saying th there was things in there about like you couldn't tie up your horse in front of the place. You could only have three horses, and it and and the big one was that it said no gaming. I said, well, that's kind of a problem. Um, Gambling. G well, the problem is it wasn't specific. It used yeah. to be that that in in before my time. Pinball machines were considered gambling machines. And so it explicitly said in the lease, you could not have pinball machines. But nobody ever vetted this document, which was probably edited for a hundred years. Um, when did pinball machines get invented? Uh, 30s, the I think. 30s? 20s or 30s, yeah. Because the reason why they're called pinball machines is they used to be like more like pachinko machines. They had pins and you would you'd have the plunger and you'd pull the pull the plunger down, it would hit the ball and it would just bounce around on the pins. There was no concept of flipping. There was no pop bumpers, no stand-up targets, none of that. Yeah, but why is that illegal? Because they were gambling machines. They were originally made as gambling machines. Because you'd, you'd put money in and hope and, to and, get- And they would pay out. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. And it, I, th I think that uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, the last city and state to 
legalize pinball machines for amusement. That's why they say amuse for amusement only on the, on the machines. Hmm. Um, they had to by law. And it, I think it was 1974, it was New York. So they, they were outlawed. Pinball machines were considered like slot machines. That's wild, man. I didn't yep. think they were invented until like the 70s. Oh, no. No, well, modern ones are, I mean, you, you had the, what we consider a pinball machine, um, you know, they've had electromechanical ones around since the 40s and 50s, huh. you know, things with with reels and stuff like that. And so they were they were literally doing state machines and all the internal stuff that we do with, with, with computers now as in, in hardware, mm -hmm. in discrete hardware, you know, had big drums with switches on it. And they were noisy and clacky and, uh, and they're, they do have an appeal too. Mm -hmm. Um, and then microprocessors in the late seventies came along and then that took care of all of the electromechanical portion. So you could change software program to make the game play differently. Okay. So it makes it a lot easier than trying to fix a bug when you've got hardware that does everything for you. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like fixing a clock, right? Like mm -hmm. an old school clock. Mm -hmm. It's got gears. It's got physical parts as mm -hmm. opposed to software. Instead of just ones and zeros. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that building was built in 1900. 1900. Yep. Did you ever like come across any old photos or hidden trap door? I mean, you talked about the one door, but were there like safes or anything crazy no, like that? No, th there was nothing down there. Um, no? So it's, it's just a, it's a, there's a staircase. In fact, it's it's on the it's on the blue what we call the blue side now, and it's underneath the the door is underneath video games. So we had it reinforced and sealed shut. So there and flooring over the top of it. So it's it's you can't get there. Um, but it's a it's a um, what do you call it? Concrete staircase that just goes down to dirt. Huh. And then there's an arch where the where it would go to the tunnel if if it were still open. Huh. So yeah. It's an old building. Yeah, that's wild. I, I was driving around downtown the other day and I saw him ripping up some part of the street. And when you just look down in there and you see dirt, mm -hmm. like four or five feet down, mm -hmm. that dirt hasn't been exposed for who knows how long. And my brain just goes crazy places like mm -hmm. thinking about the horses walking across mm -hmm. it or whatever, man. Cause or what diseases are down there and you yeah. think, you're thinking X-Files kind of thing. <laughs> um, I, I did one time get an opportunity to go down in the basement of, I forgot the name of the theater. It's the main one on Broadway, downtown. They're, 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 the Shanghai tunnels are all underneath Burnside. And when I went down there, they had all kinds of stuff stored down there. They had like old school, they had an old school, um, not an ottoman, what's it called? Uh, an armoire, the, the, it has all the clothes in it and stuff. These were costumes from shows they used to put on before they put movies in that theater. Okay. When they were actually running it as a theater. So it was it was a neat, neat to be able to see a little Portland, bit of Portland history there. Yeah, do you know much about the Shanghai Tunnels? Mm -mm. No? Yeah, a lot of it is, I think, em embellished. I mean, it, it's it's the, the um, oh, what's the, uh, um, you know, things about people being drugged and put on ships to China and stuff yeah. like that. And I mean, that's the only thing I've ever heard. Yeah. There's like a trap door, you fall through it. Yeah. After they, they put some roofies in your drink and mm -hmm. now you're... Now, slave labor now in China. you're working in Shanghai, yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not I, unbelievable. It, but. It's not unbelievable, but I, I, it, as, as I understand it, it, it wasn't really a thing. It was, it's, it's, it's folklore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, a cool story. Yeah. Well, okay, so I think we detoured from uh, holding <laughs> shows and having shows uh -huh. in the space. Yeah, well, when we had shows, the problem is the people who wanted to play the video games didn't want to hear the show. People who were there for the show didn't care about the video games. Yeah. So, you know, when you have two businesses that are kind of incompatible, you you take them apart. And so we did. We so removed them. who, did you ever have anybody 
famous play or somebody that that I would know or somebody listening um, would know? In some circles, yes. We had, uh, I think our biggest band was the Mini Bosses. Okay. They, they did um, basically rock covers of video game songs. Okay. And that was fun. That's cool. I could see everybody <laughs> enjoying that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, we, the the people that we had, the shows were just kind of loud, and people just wanted to get there and and, and drink. It's a, just a different crowd, yeah, different focus. Yeah. But you know, we kind of supplemented that in the, in the new space with um, having DJs come in. So cool. that's more 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 appropriate for the time and the and the thing. So we'd have people come in and do shows with, you know, an '80s themed music, or we do you know '90s techno or whatever. Mm -hmm. So do you have various themed nights? We don't have various themed nights, although we do have two free play nights every month. It's two Wednesdays, the second Wednesday and fourth Wednesday, if I remember correctly. This is not this is I, this is the reason I, I wish that that Dylan, our promotions director, were here because he could tell. Oh yeah, this is we this is what we do. Mm -hmm. So he, he handles that side of the business. And yeah. I'm like, okay, you 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 got that you got that handled. I'm 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 okay with that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so, cool. I mean, yeah. you just kind of push it out of your brain. Right. You got other things to deal with. Yeah. I, my brain only holds so much. Yeah. Same. Here. Spills out. <laughs> Well, the the biggest person I know that came through there was Louis C.K. a couple yep. years yep. ago, right? He did an, he just... he did an impromptu uh, show at GK. Uh -huh. um, we've had other uh, uh, rock stars from uh, the Rosens, and the Rosens right next to us, yeah. um, come in, and it, we've it, the the fun. We've had some fun ones too, like um, a beefcake from uh, Guar. Came in in his full outfit. And I was going to say, nobody would recognize him. No, no, no. And he came in, he just loved to play Asteroids. Yeah. Um, we had Lemmy from Motorhead. Nice. Come in. He nice. liked Tempest. Big Tempest fan. Um, I can't remember the, the, the rest of them. We had uh, Brian Posehn come in. Um, the comedian? He's comedian. Yeah. 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 So he's kind of in the circle with, with Sarah Silverman. And, uh -huh. and uh, anyway, I, he's a tall guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a huge dude. <laughs> yeah, he is. Real nice guy. Um, and uh, occasionally Will Wheaton. Um he was a friend of uh, our old general manager. Cool. And he'd come in. He was, he's the kindest, coolest dude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there games you have there that that are more popular than others? Like pe there's lines for certain things? Yeah. Um, one of them we have is called Killer Queen. It's an indie, kind of an indie game. Imagine, you remember Joust? Yeah. It's like Joust on steroids. It's with 10 players. So you have five on each side and you, you you have a screen and they've got a screen and you play against the players. And we have uh, Killer Queen tournament tournaments and um, it's a it's a very good group social game. Uh -huh. um, so that's that's a big one. Um, do, you, uh, do you have anything that is that's rare that doesn't exist in, in most other parts of the country or the world that people seek you out because you have it? Well, we have some unique games. Um, the Killer Queen is one of them. I mean, there there are other people who have Killer Queen machines, but we also try to work with indie artists as well, too. We've got a game right now called uh, Armed and Gelatinous, and we've got another uh, indie game that that is this with as well. I, I'm sorry, the name slips slipped my mind. Right. Um, but it, it's not so much if, if somebody gets a game and it's cool, somebody else is going to wind up getting it. Yeah, because it's just the way it is now, right? It, you have instantaneous communication with everybody, and and pretty much all the arcade owners know each other. Um, it directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, it was a, the, it's in the spirit of ground control, which is, our, our spirit is we, we, it, we want to make something unique. It's not just an arcade. It's, it's also kind of a tied into Portland and doing kind of Portlandish things. Sure. Right. So uh, indie independent artist is definitely our bag mm -hmm. as well too. So, but we also keep 
all the standard lineups of pinball machines. When new pinball machines come out, we get them. We have what we call a dad rock closet, which is like, you know, the Kiss pinball and the and the Iron Maiden pinball and stuff <laughs> like that. ACDC. Yeah, 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 yeah it, it, exactly. And, and um, you know, the, the Rush one came out. And so my, my, my techs and uh, Dylan, our, our promotions director, um, started texting me about this Rush because he knew I was a Rush fan. And I'm like, we were like oversubscribed on, on dad rock pinballs. <laughs> we got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, man. exactly. It's like, it, it, it's like, you know, and we, we had this interesting discussion about whether or not Rush is considered dad rock or not. And my kids let me know that, no, it's dad rock. It's totally dad well, rock. Most people don't know who Rush is. It's like so nerdy because they're so good mm -hmm. at their instruments mm -hmm. that like, it's not, it's not just something that people turn on when they're driving to the beach or something, you mm -hmm. know, it's like, Oh, I do. Well, you do red barchetta, you know, cause yeah. you're going to focus on what's going on. You Absolutely. know, you know who Neil Peart is. Yes, I do. Yeah. So Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson, of course, they're, they're one of those bands that they're like, they're like a nerd band cause they're so good, <laughs> you know, what, it, what's the, the joke about, um, there, there was one, it was like a college or die video or something. And they had Neil and Getty and, and Alex kind of walking off after a show and, one of the guys says, five. I know. I, I counted six. And Neil turns around and goes, yeah, six women at the Rush concert. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're with their husbands. <laughs> yeah. But there's there's some pinball machines that I, I wish that they would come out with. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see like a Primus pinball machine. Yeah. You know, my name is Mud Multiball. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. So, but yeah, we we our variety of games are, the, the great thing about ground control is we're, we're talking about classic games or classic arcade and our product really is nostalgia more than anything else is social social work uh you know socializing and nostalgia uh -huh. and the great thing about nostalgia is everybody is nostalgic about something yeah so over the years as we've progressed it's become less and less about 70s and 80s video games and we've got 90s video games and then we've got aught video games and modern video games so the good thing is we're all nostalgic about something and that's a that's and the great thing about the people like to drink when they're sad and they like to drink when they're happy because it's cheap entertainment mm -hmm. and they get to socialize with their friends. So it's, it was, it was a pretty good business model, of course, until COVID came along. <laughs> you can see that one coming, coming. So things are rolling pretty good from 03 to 2020. And then. Um, there are a few stops along the way. Um, so the business really wasn't doing much more than just trying to get itself going until probably 2008 or 2009. That's when our first um, remodel came through. And we added alcohol in 2004, I think, when we moved to the new place. We added, or actually, it was maybe a year later. I, it's been a while. We added beer and wine. So all the, the, the low level stuff. Um, and we took the revenue from that, put that back into the business, buying more games. And we get games from all over the place. Sometimes they're new. Sometimes people phone us up and say, I have this game in my garage. I want to sell it to you. Sometimes they say, uh, sometimes we find them on Craigslist. It just depends. Well, you probably just run out of space at that point, right? Well, we started storing things at our houses, in our garages. Like my garage is filled with games and you know, the other owners' garages are filled with games. <laughs> and it got worse. Yeah. So we started, we started amassing as many games as we possibly could because – of the games that we've got, we probably, of the games we've got, there's probably only about a third of them are on the floor. So huh. we've, we've got enough for another couple of arcades. Well, and so this goes to me talking about the, the, um, how rare something is. Aren't, mm -hmm. aren't some of the games that you have 
worth a ridiculous amount of money because there's only so many in existence? I can't think of one off the top of my head, but we do have some unique ones that not a lot of people have. Like, let's see, we have an Atari, we have an Atari pinball machine from 1978 that's a really rare game. Uh -huh. It's not very popular, but it's also, it's one of those things where it's not like widely popular where everybody knows about it and everybody wants it. It's like a few people know it and want it. Yeah. Um, but as far as like rarities and, you know, and finding like a barn find of a of, of an old 911 or something, mm -hmm. no, there's nothing like that. Yeah. Um, but the good news is the video games have only gone up in, in terms of price and value. Yeah. Um, so they, they hold their value. Yeah. Um, and they, they're, they're good investments. And not only that, we like to see, you know, a three, a three to six month return on investment on any game that we buy. That's the, our kind of our, our metric, you know, that's the reason why we don't have a lot of video games and pinball machines that are not very good. So we try to get the games that don't play and, you know, they get relegated to the back of the garage. Hmm. So, so you, you may walk the floor on any given night or I mean, how do you determine whether or not something is is living up to its uh... potential? Yeah, um, we have a, a card based credit system, and we know when, and we know the we can see very quickly what the games have been earning, when they're earning, stuff like that. So it's easy to, it's easy to see. Mm -hmm. We actually created something. Um, we didn't have that analysis early on, and in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, one of the other owners and I uh, created a system we called CoinNet which was these little boards and it would, these little boards that would connect to the, um, the coin switches and all the games. So every time a game coin was dropped, it would broadcast the fact that somebody dropped a coin. And then I wrote the software on the back end to receive the data and then process it. And so I, I'm not, we retired that software, uh, when we put the, the new uh, card system in, hmm. uh, about a little over a year ago. Okay. And that's what you brought me today. Yes, sir. This card mm -hmm. right here. Yep. So this has only been in service for a year. Uh, well, since we reopened in June of last year. Okay. Yeah, and we switched. We switched to cards for a lot of reasons. You know, part of it was COVID. Yeah. Right. You know, we didn't. The, the less you're actually handing coins and stuff like that, it's a little more sanitary. Um, the second is uh, they had a pretty good analysis system. The company that we went with had a really good analysis system with it. Um, the third was that we don't have to deal with coins. Yeah. We don't have to constantly, you know, deal with coin jams and and stuff like that. I mean, that that took an appreciable and and co collecting all the coins from the from the games and then having to deposit all the coins at the, say, at the bank. Yeah. Right. And the the last one was, you know, we we we'd have to buy a couple of grand worth of coins every week because people would come in, they'd use our change machines and 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 get out or they'd come in with a 10 and they'd get a bunch of change and then yeah. so our change would walk right out of the building. So it became labor intensive. It became, you know, a, a health issue and stuff like that. It's like, well, it's time to it's it's time to up it. And not only that, it gives us some more flexibility too. We can we can throw one switch and all of a sudden all the games are on free play. Whereas with the coin system, what we'd have to do is figure out every single game and whether or not some games didn't even have a free play capability. So you had to you had to like jerry rig up a button so people could could hit a button hmm. or something. But um, the Every game did free play differently. Some of them were dip switches that you'd, you'd throw on the board. Other games would be, um, you know, menus. You go into menus, but but setting up for free play would take an hour, and you'd need two or three staff people to go do it. So, and it was a pain for everybody. Nobody wanted to do it. I I, I wouldn't <laughs> want it. It's boring. So, well, was that a good night? Was it worth it? The free play nights? Yeah. The the free play nights I think are always worth it. Um, the reason being is that free play free play nights tend to bring out 
the, the fringe people. And when I, when I say fringe, the people that don't regularly go out to bars or whatever, say, hey, they're having a free play night. Let's just go out there. Yeah. And then they would try games that they wouldn't ordinarily try. So you, you have one, one uh, rather than just coming in and playing their game, they're like, oh, I, this doesn't cost me anymore. I'm going to go try this other game. So it's, 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 it's a win all the way across the board. Yeah. And so that's why we do them. It's a, it's also a promotional sort of thing too that the ground control does. And you know the other arcades that are that are in in business in various other states and East County and whatnot uh, do the, do similar things. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a it's a way to kind of shake things up and and kind of get people in the door too. Yeah. And we do that. That's the reason why we do them on Wednesdays is because typically you know our, our slower nights are during the week and and early part of the week and the evenings of the early part of the week are generally not well attended because mm -hmm. it's just people don't go out on on the weeknights usually. Yeah. yeah. So what was COVID like for you guys? Was it pretty brutal? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Did you um, did you think you were gonna have to close down? There was a risk of that. Yeah. Big one. So um we started watching the 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 general public become wary of going out anywhere and getting COVID. Yeah. Um revenue dropped very sharply in about three weeks. And then of course um the state shut everybody down. So we had a um, the PPP loans, the the Paycheck Protection Program loans, and the EIDL loans. Of course, we we got in on that, of course, um, but we were shut down, so we couldn't pay payroll. So we had to take that money and put that towards rent. You couldn't pay people with the PPP. Well, you could, but the problem is, if your choice was either paying people or shutting down because you've not made rent. Oh uh, yeah. So that money that that would normally go to paying people's payroll went initially to um, to keeping the keeping the uh, mortgage or keeping the the lease going mm -hmm. but you know we had <laughs> it's all of a sudden it just you know that any any income that we did have completely shut down immediately and then we all of a sudden were mat we're looking at a massive amount of debt too yeah. so we we wound up I, I think right now as it stands we're about 400 grand in debt because just of COVID. from COVID. just from covid Wow. We're going to be digging out of that for a while. <laughs> so, and anyway, and, and, you know, we reopened in June of last year and the good news is people have kind of come back, uh -huh. um, but not in the same numbers. You know, we're only at probably 60 or 70% of the, of the traffic that we had before. Yeah. I think Portland's a little more, um, a, a, a bit more cautious than most other places. Well, downtown's getting a bad rap too. Yeah, you know, because of the, the 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 violence and shootings and stuff like that. I mean, mm -hmm. we had during the the uh, George Floyd uh, fiasco there, um, we had a construction site come through, through thrown through our window when the mob, angry mob came by. Hmm. Um, so that's the reason why the buildings are all board, are, are are all boarded up in downtown mm -hmm. is because that stuff still goes on. Yeah. Um, so um, you know, the, obviously the homeless issue has been a problem too and crime has been as well too so the thing is portland downtown portland in that area is nowhere near as bad as the media would make it out to be yeah and so that's kind of unfortunate so when i see you know ktu and other local stations doing hit pieces on how bad it is in downtown portland it's like would you guys just knock that off you're not helping <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um that's they're a pretty good one that's a good one low flying <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was not a good thing for a lot of people, especially people trying to run businesses. So I don't know. Well, it shut down all the bars, right? Um, and the good news is that we didn't lose very many people. 
We had a few that that quit and went on and got got different jobs, but we worked with everybody as much as we could to ensure that they ma they maximized their um, uh, their federal benefits. Yeah, their COVID benefits. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got a good crew of people. We've really got a good crew of people. I mean, every everybody from management to the techs to the bar staff to the the kitchen crew, everybody is very good. Just good people. <laughs> it was a good opportunity. Yeah, it seems like one of those places where you're only going to get people who are very interested in what the business is. You're not just going to yeah. get some random person who who doesn't like video games. Well, you've got the bar side, right? And that that attracts the people who are bar people, uh -huh. right? And you've also got the technical side of it. So our technicians that we have are not people we just hired off. The, well, actually, they are people we hired off the street. Um, they're not technicians that we happen to hi happen to happen to hire a technician we uh -huh. hire somebody who is interested in the in the in the technical aspects of workings of video games so we train them yeah we train them and sometimes what happens you have people that leave and and then you know you got to train more people and stuff like that but the people who are who are genuinely interested in the technology of the game you know maintenance of the games usually they start out like they buy a, they buy a pinball machine and then they realize that wait a minute I can't fix this thing if it breaks so I got to go learn some of this stuff and so we've had people that that we've had techs that have come and gone that have done exactly that. They came in and they said, you know, hey, I'd really love to work for you guys. I'd, I just want to learn how to do this stuff. And then they wind up staying on or they wind up, you know, changing careers because mm -hmm. of it. So, but yeah, our our, our tech staff is is uh, trained up by, by, a, by pretty much everybody, all the owners. It seems somewhat similar to like knowing how to work on cars. You know, it's just, it's a machine that you have to figure out the different pieces, right? It's more like old cars. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because because video games look at looking at old video games, if you're if you're dealing with technology that's from nineteen seventy-five or nineteen eighty, that's old school stuff. You know, this day and age, you pretty much if you want to fix a game, you they're they're just PCs inside these large machines. Yeah. And you can swap out a, anybody can swap out a motherboard. Not a big deal. But when you have a low voltage problem on an old power supply or you've got a glitchy RAM chip, you've got a single bit RAM chip that's not working right, you have to know how to troubleshoot that. And so that's, it's kind of a dying art. Um, that, that, that old technology is, is stuff that like us old guys uh, <laughs> know about and then we, we're training everybody else. But the, the interesting thing about it is that the fundamentals of electronics have never changed. They're all the same. It's just faster and more of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, things like Ohm's law and, and things that govern uh, everything electronic are, are, are truths that are still true even with modern technology. Do you ever run into an issue where you need a part that you can't get? Oh, yeah. Yeah? All the time, especially pinball machines. Um, you get like a, you'll get a custom part. So like in the, in the Stern machines, uh, you know, by Stern pinball machine, they, they make, Stern is still like one of the most premier pinball machine manufacturers out there. Okay. You'll get a part and what'll happen is they won't have it. Um, we had a game with, a, uh, it was a Star Wars pinball machine and it had one of the LED boards that has, it has like a dozen LEDs on it. And it's a board that shines up to show what mode you're in or what game you're playing. And, um, the, um, they were out of, they, they were completely out of them. Stern didn't have them. So we had to jury rig the thing and, and get it to work. Um, fortunately, it's fairly simple uh, parts, but the physical ones, the, the physical things that like gates and drawbridges and, and habit trails that we have inside the pinball machines mm -hmm. that, are, that are all custom for the game, sometimes you can get them and sometimes you can't. You just cannot get them. So um, my wife uh, deals with custom fabrication and she's 
recently joined the team <laughs> um, and has, uh, in some cases, made parts directly. So she brings it up in... in like with a 3D printer? Um, some of them have been 3D printers. We, yeah. we have like a saucers, for example. There's like a, where you have a, I forgot the name of the, 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 the device, but basically when the ball kind of traps in and there's a, there's an up kicker that they kind of flips the ball back towards you. Uh -huh. There's like plastic pieces in there that you can't get anymore. And so you 3D print those. Yeah. So you design it in, in, uh, SolidWorks or whatever program you, you, you want to use, and then you go print it. Um, we're also doing things like sometimes we have, uh, video games that, you, you, they no longer, you can't get monitors anymore for it. You can't get 25 inch tubes for them. They don't make them. So yeah. you have to replace them with LCDs. So you do that, but the problem is you have to convert the video, whatever the video output is to the, to the native HDMI format or, or VGA or whatever. Yeah. And now you have to somehow mount that thing in the game. So she, in one of the games, you have a NASCAR game, um, what had to mount a monitor and she designed a bracket, a, a huge bracket to custom fit that TV in that game. Hmm. So that's the kind of stuff you have to do. But yeah, you, you there are some parts you just flatly can't get. And and after a while, what will happen is the manufacturer will stop making the board. They'll stop making a driver board for a, for a pinball machine, for example. So somebody else, some other entrepreneurial-minded individual will come along and say, well, you know what? I can make a board for this game that's better. And so some of these old games like Black Knight, um, the, the, the original Black Knight, the original multi-ball Black Knight, used a Williams System 7 board set which is like three big boards, very unreliable, not a very good system. Somebody's got a board that has everything all in one board. You plug in the connectors and off you go. But it's with modern electronics. And so the short answer to your question is, yeah, there's parts you can't get. And, but there are ways to make them. And sometimes people will come out of the woodwork and, and go make them. And of course, when COVID hit, a lot of the manufacturing dried up too. Yeah. And so parts supply chains couldn't get them. And so we'd have to make them ourselves or, you know, limp along with a game that's not 100%. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we strive to keep the games in as good a shape as we possibly can. Sometimes it, it overwhelms us. Sometimes it just, you know, you'll have one week where all the games continue to work without any problems and nobody has any issues. And then all of a sudden one week you got 10 games that all have problems. They get a stuck flipper or a blown fuse or the monitor goes out or something like that. Mm -hmm. so, but yeah, that's the reason why we've got four tax. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. Nice. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the the. I mean, you're you're running a business. You're uh, you're serving alcohol. You're maintaining these classic games. There's so many facets that are required to just open the door every day. Yep, and that gets back to my original statement when I said, "Is the business is bigger than one person?" Yeah, right. And so I don't. There's a lot of areas of the business that I don't have any expertise in at all, uh -huh. and I rely on my partners. I'm glad I have them. Yeah. So do you, do you ever feel like you would just do it full time or do you enjoy having a day job and this is like the side project? Well, it used to be that pretty much all of my spare time was taken up. You know, I had my day job mm -hmm. at Intel and I would, in the evenings and weekends, I would go down to ground patrol, fix the game, deliver a new game, remove a new game, drive to Salem to buy a game, you know, drive to the beach to buy a game. Just that kind of stuff related to the business. And we'd, we'd do stuff midweek. Sometimes we'd do it midday, just whatever the business needed. And it was it was the owners doing the vast majority of the work because we couldn't afford to, to hire anybody else to handle it for us at the time. Um, and eventually over time, it, it made enough revenue where it was to the point where it was self-sustaining. 
And it made us a little bit of money, but we didn't even see any profit at all from the company until about 2009 or so. When you did the remodel? About the time we did the remodel. So 2008, 2009, about that time frame. I don't, I don't recall exactly the specific time frame, but um, anyway, it it got to the point now where it's like, okay, we now have people that are handling these things on a daily basis. They're going and, and buying food. They're going and buying the alcohol. They're having somebody deliver it and that sort of stuff. And so then we, we it's like, okay, it's operating. And now what we do is we just keep an eye on it. We keep an eye on it, and you know, I keep an open line with my technicians, um, and you know, I. My basic philosophy of management is that that the best managers in the world are helpers. They assist yeah, people with everybody, yeah. right? They're not somebody to sit there to be a big evil overlord and tell you what you, what you did wrong. You're the uh, you're the cheerleader and you are the helper. Yep. You do things to enable them, and that's what we try to do. Yeah, no, I agree. You hire smart, talented people that you mm -hmm. trust, and you let them do it. You hire people that are smarter than you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or or people that have potential. And of course, as I get older, my my whole, my interest seeing, hel helping the, the younger crew, for lack of a better term, you know, helping helping people that are younger from here, people who are worthy of it, who are really interested. I had so many good mentors growing up that it would be, I think, I would be societally deficient if I didn't give some of that back to varying degrees. And it, it's nice to see that, you know, when somebody goes from not knowing anything to being completely self-sufficient in something, which I've seen multiple times now mm -hmm. at Ground Control, especially with our technicians, um, that's rewarding. Yeah. And it's good. It's better for society. It's better for them. It's better for us. You know, it gives everybody opportunities. And um, anyway, that's my, my spiel on <laughs> management. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Uh, so I, I, before we get too far, uh, I wanted to talk about... Uh, your history with recording because I had no idea about that until you just came in and sat down <laughs> and I never get to talk to anybody about oh, geez. being in a studio. Uh -huh. I, I I went to school in uh, Tempe, Arizona mm -hmm. in 2005 mm -hmm. and I was trained to clean tape heads. Mm -hmm. I was clean to or, uh, trained to multi-track mm -hmm. audio mm -hmm. in a studio setting, mm -hmm. recording bands, recording symphonies, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I realized in 2005 that I was never going to get a job doing mm -hmm. that because because there's the market's way too big and there's too many people there's too many people doing the job. Yeah, and, and, and cleaning tape heads is not something you do anymore unless you're you're in Dave Grohl's studio. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, it's you're it's analog tape now. It's not a skill you need, and this school that I went to is still churning them out. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're getting different jobs. They, uh, I mean, they also taught us a little bit of live sound. They taught us uh, post-production sound. Mm -hmm. So they are trying to help people, but th this very specific art that I was passionate about, I was trained in and during the training realized I'd never get a job doing it mm -hmm. and realized I didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to record all the albums I had already heard. Mm -hmm. And there were a number of stories from the instructors and stuff where they're just like, they hated the songs that they had recorded by the time they were done. Because mm -hmm. you listen to them so many times, mm -hmm. you don't want to hear that album ever again. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird thing where you want to be a part of something that you can't be. And it, it was so disappointing that I figured that out while I was there. Mm -hmm. But... It's so cool to be in that creative space 
doing it yourself or doing it for someone else, mm -hmm. when you get to capture that thing that could exist for 50 years, mm -hmm. you know, 100 years. Mm -hmm. And so what what's your history with that? Well, my, my history as far as professional stuff, I, I, I had the same kind of epiphany that you did, but in a different context and a lot earlier. So in, I grew up, listen, I was a music junkie. I'd listened to records since I was a year and a half old. I got my first record player when I was a year and a half old. And it was given to me by Barbara Roberts, who is the ex-governor of Oregon. Why is Barbara Roberts giving you? Because she players. was friends of my fa of our family, <laughs> because my dad was in the House of Representatives. Oh wow! In Oregon, yeah, from okay. I think 1962 to 1968. So wow. he was politically connected. Okay. Um, so she gave me a record player when I was a year and a half old, and I played records. I had things like Disney's Bambi soundtrack. Uh -huh. That was one of my first early records. I had Prez Prado's uh, record. He's a he's a Cuban. Fantastic musician. I loved Cuban music. Um, I had, uh, I think at the time, I can't remember the records I had, but they were all in the early seventies. And um, so I grew up, I grew up very musically, very inclined. Of course, my my parents were Depression era babies, and they grew up in the in the in the um, I guess the forties. So he, my dad was in World War II. Um, and he would listen to things like the ink spots and he was very big into classic country and, you know, Jim Reeves and things like that. And, um, of course I was a little more modern and I was coming up listening to 10 CC and I was listening to Pink Floyd and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And of course, when, um, there's a few iconic albums that, that really caught my attention. One of them was Alan Parsons, Tales of Mystery Imagination. Um, the other one is Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. It to me are just brilliant albums from, mm -hmm. from beginning to end. Um, and then I got into rock. I became a, a, a closet metal head, not a metal head cause there's no metal at the time, but, um, <laughs> I started getting into ACDC when I was in about fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was I took a, I, I, I was a rocker for the longest time and new wave hit. So Duran Duran, Gary Newman, uh, uh, Depeche Mode, stuff like that. And so I really started getting into music and just loving it. And I was very big into eighties music. I was very big into metal too, when it came out. So, um, I had kind of a taste that that broadened. And I said, how do they do these things? So I would sit here, I bought a CD player, oh boy, probably when I was 14. So it was about a year after they came out, bought it from a friend of mine, one weren't, of my mentors. Weren't they like thousands of dollars? Yes. They're, at the time, they were about 900 bucks wow. for one player. And they had, at the time, I had three discs. I had Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I had a Tchaikovsky uh, recording of, of classical music. And I had Billy Joel's uh, Nylon Curtain. Those are the first CDs I had. And I listened to those to death. And of course, you'd have to save up for two weeks to go buy another CD, which would cost you 20 bucks. Yeah. Um, but I was very interested in production. I started listening to, I had um, the the prog rock kind of grabbed my ear more than anything else. And I, I was I was a very big anti-Rush fan until uh, Signals came out. And when I heard Subdivisions, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is this is really cool. So I started getting interested in the production of it itself. And something called MIDI came out when I was about 14. Mm -hmm. That's the ability to musical instrument, digital interface, so you can, you can hook two keyboards together. <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, for people listening who don't understand that, it's basically, so you're just recording, it's really like a, it's like the a notes. note. It's the notes. But it's but, like a, a digital, it's yep. like a, just something that the computer looks at and yep. reproduces and it could become a note on a keyboard. It could be a drum sound. It mm -hmm. could be anything. Yep. 
Yep. And it remembers things like velocity. Like when you hit a note, it's, there's a note on and when mm -hmm. you release it, there's a note off and yeah. you can do pitch bend and, you know, setting the damper pedals like on a piano and stuff. It, it's, it's, that's how you connect to these machines together. So I was, I was classically trained as a, as a pianist. Um, I played piano, uh, primarily when I was a young kid and piano and drums. And when MIDI came out, I was like, why do I need to practice for 20 hours when I can just play it and have the computer play it back and I can edit the notes and get everything exactly the way I want to see it. So for me, it was, it was a marriage of that technology I was talking about earlier and music. And I started studying just because I didn't know anything about production. I, I, uh, I think it was called recording magazine or record mag. I forgot what it was, but anyway, it was a recording focus magazine, that and keyboard magazine. And I would read all these articles about the Fairlight and all these other really cool synthesizers that were out there that, you know, I'd never be able to afford and um, that got my interest. And then I got old enough to the point where I could actually work in a recording studio. And there was a place in Milwaukee. I don't remember the place. I don't remember the, the name of the studio. And I only worked there for a few months for two years as an engineer for, for a few months during the summer because I, I was still in school and, and, and couldn't, uh, I was otherwise occupied. And um, that was where I got my experience but what I thought the world of recording was, you know, I was reading up on Alan Parsons. He was, he's still my idol. Um, reading up on his production techniques and the equipment that he used and, and whatnot. And I was, I would listen to his recordings on the CD player. And I'd found that, that you could pull out like the RCA connector on the back of the, of the CD player where you're not holding the ground to, to, the, to the pin. And it would cause a cancellation between the right and the left channel. Mm -hmm. And you would hear the difference between the left and right channel. And so all that cool stuff that's buried in the mix when you listen in a stereo field comes out. So I started listening to that. That was my first introduction to recording techniques, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like that. Why, did, why does this sound suddenly come out? Why did, you know, and, and so that fascinated me. And so I wanted to be a rock star. Um, but when I worked in the recording studio, it was, it was anything but a pleasant experience. It was, it was kind of like what you're saying. It's, it's, you realize at some point that this is not something that I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. Because like you were saying before we started, you have to deal with personalities mm -hmm. and you have to deal with everybody wanting to hear more of themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard to, when you're in charge of helping somebody creatively achieve something, it's hard to... Well, first of all, in most situations, you're not allowed to tell them what you think. Right. They, they don't care what you right. think. Right. You're a hired hand to go do a job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But sometimes what you want to do is you want to say, you know, look, that sounds pretty good, but if you did this and this and this, this would be better. And so depending upon the artist that you're working with, they're going to be, no, this is my art. You shouldn't touch this. And other people are very, very open about mm -hmm. it. Um, and I found out that doing that as a profession I would. I was basically just sort of a grunt doing somebody else's job. I, I wasn't a an Alan Parsons. I wasn't a uh, a George Martin. I wasn't. I'm not going to be any of those guys. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the low guy in the totem pole. Mm -hmm. And I decided that that was probably not a good idea. But I still had a love of engineering. I still had a love of computers, and I still had a love of music. And so I pursued computers as my as my career. Instead. Do you still record now? Um, no, my equipment sits pretty much dormant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of a de facto collector because I'm just so busy with the, with the other business adventure, yeah. uh, business endeavors. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, I'm, I, I do have a good, I do have a nice studio and I've just ordered some critical parts for it. I'd get some DB25 connectors so I can, I can route from one part of my studio to the other, but, and I'm hoping to do something fairly soon. Do you have things soundproofed? No. 
No. Not yet. Um, that's a problem. But that, then again, I, electronic music is my is my bag, basically. Okay. Even, okay. even though I'm a closet metalhead and I love Alan Parsons and stuff like that, the stuff that I really like is electronica. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so my my muses were, were not the Beatles. My, my muses were Kraftwerk uh -huh. and, and Jean-Michel Jarre and people like that, people who were pioneers and, you know, Depeche Mode, Vince Clark. Um, that's, that's kind of the direction I got, I went and you don't really need much soundproofing for that because there's no, no room for a vocal booth, but I do need some of it because it's very reverberant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's weird because you don't really think about how important that is and like what the microphone can really capture. And mm -hmm. anybody listening now can hear these airplanes flying over, but mm -hmm. like when you're just hanging out somewhere, you don't really think about that kind of stuff. Well, I think the average person doesn't think about the, the, the quality of the sound at all. Yeah. It's to them, it's for most people, you just don't know if it's not on your radar, you're not going to know it. Mm -hmm. But that is the, I, I work in live events though, and we do projection and sound and lighting and mm -hmm. all, all the elements that go at a concert or at a corporate event. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing that people complain about the most is the sound. In, in what regard? In that it's <clears throat> either bad or good, or they can't hear enough of something. Mm -hmm. The, the nature of the human ear is so subjective. Yep, and variable from person and to person. And yeah, because mm -hmm. your your sound capabilities, your, your ability to hear the full spectrum mm -hmm. is greatest when you're a baby mm -hmm. and you slowly lose it over time. Mm -hmm. And- I've got a funny story about that actually. No matter where you're at in a room, like nobody's ever going to hear it the same. Mm -hmm. So it's so difficult to mix live sound mm -hmm. anywhere for anybody. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't even try it. Yeah. I mean, if I can sit there with a mixer and a, and a tape machine and, and do my own mixes and listen to my cans or some good monitors, I'm happy with that. Trying to, trying to mix in a venue with, <clears throat> you know, with um, a whole bunch of people in it. Of course, it sounds different when you have nobody in there and you do a mix. Yes. That's why the first, you know, song or two of a, of a, of a concert sounds like crap yeah. is because they got to hit all the people are in there. Now the acoustics are completely different. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I, I don't envy you, but I also admire you for, <laughs> for well, having the guts I, to do I it. I try not to do sound anymore because it, yeah. it's a pain in the ass. It sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't like it. But what, what's your story? Uh, which story? Oh, uh, let's see here. Oh, you the funny story about, about my hearing, about hearing. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I think us guys tend to tend to try to deny things about our age uh, periodically, and I always pride had a good pride with my 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 ears were very good. I had very good ears and stuff. And a few years back, I was playing with a, one of my modular synthesizers, and I was not hearing anything. Of course, you know, of course, you know, in audio that there's way more ways to make no sound than there is to make sound. So I was fiddling around trying to figure out why I was not able to hear this oscillator. This, this modular synth. And it was driving me crazy. I look over and the, the meters were up, it's showing signal, it shows my output on my, my speakers and everything else. And then I was like, oh, um, I have the oscillator out of, my human, out of the human hearing range. I had it turned too high. So it was a frequency I couldn't hear. So then I decided, I wonder what my hearing is like now. So I started turning it down, turning it down lower and lower and lower and realized that my hearing I used to hear to 20 kilohertz was down to 13 kilohertz. And I was like, oh, but I never noticed. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's, that, that's, that's an odd way of figuring out, oh yeah, by the way, your hearing is bad. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because dogs can hear, mm -hmm. uh, what is it, 40K? It's like 40 or 50K. Yeah. You know, birds are like 80 or 90 or something, but they don't have any low end hearing and stuff like that. So 
Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So my hearing got considerably worse um, it, over the last few years. And it wasn't because I was abusive to my ears. I think I'm just, you know, getting to become an old guy. That's just what happens. You just mm -hmm. slowly start to lose it. And vision too. You know, it's only, I, I had perfect vision up until about three years ago. And then I'm starting to see, I'm starting to have to hold my phone like this and, and, and stuff like that. It, but, it, but it creeps up on you. It's not mm -hmm. something that just like one day you wake up and you, it used to be that I would do very specific things in electronics where I'd be soldering something or putting a, a putting a scope or a probe on something. And then all of a sudden I couldn't do it anymore because I couldn't see it. Hmm. Um, and then there was actually tie into ground control here. Um, I think last year we were, we were trying to fix a problem with one of the cameras and it's their, their power over ethernet cameras. So they're just network camera, network cameras. And we clipped off the end and we pulled the wires out to, to crimp on a connector. I could not see where the wires would go mm -hmm. in it. And that was the year before I could, and that year I couldn't. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what, that's why Franklin made the bifocals, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Old man reading glasses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. They'll figure out all that stuff here in the next 50 years. Well, it's we what magnif that's it. what magnifying glasses are for. And, you know, it used to be, I was, a, I was a big audiophile nerd. So I always wanted to get like the best stereo gear. I'd have the best amplifier, the best speakers, the best, you know, audio, you know, CDs were great back then because, you know, everything else sucked. Mm -hmm. Even I had a good tape deck, but it wasn't, still wasn't as good as a CD. Yeah. But that's, what's <clears throat> interesting about now is that people don't buy CDs anymore nope. and vinyl's making a comeback. That's weird to me. I like it because it's a physical element that you can touch and you can still see the album art and stuff. You mm -hmm. don't see album art anymore. I know. It's just- a, That is a downside. It's a Spotify playlist. Right. It's a playlist and it's a list of lyrics that's on a web, web page that you can just cut and paste and send off to yeah. your friends. Yeah. There, there, is a, there is a social element of it that, that's missing. We used to have listening parties. We'd come over, we'd, we'd get a really nice stereo, we'd sit in a room, we'd get our favorite drinks, we'd sit back, we'd throw a record on or throw a CD on and we'd listen to it for, for the entire evening, have listening parties. Mm -hmm. you know, and we'd, we'd, we'd constantly be swapping swapping out, you know, designing speakers and swapping subwoofers out and going with different amplifiers and stuff like that. And it was, it was a, it's a, something now that even the garbage, um, stereo equipment still pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it, it used to be that you would have to have, if you wanted to get a digital analog converter to, to sound good, you have to get the player that had the good digital analog converter in it. Now, even a crappy one in a PC is way better than anything <laughs> that those systems yeah, had. Yeah, it just gets easier and easier to produce and it gets cheaper too. Becomes more of a commodity. But yeah, the, the vinyl thing is a weird to me because I never, you know, vinyl, people say vinyl sounds better. Well, it's subjective, right? Mm -hmm. From a technical perspective, it's objectively worse than a, than a CD or any digital medium. Mm -hmm. Well, then again, they're probably the best record sounds better than the worst MP3. Um, yeah, but it also degrades over time. Yes, it does. Every time you listen to it, it gets worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. It, your stylus gets worn down, uh -huh. your your record gets worse uh -huh. and stuff like that. But but I'll tell you, I used to have some of the best um uh I, I used to go to clubs when in the mid 80s because they had like underage clubs. And so I was listening to a lot a lot of the mixes, a lot of the 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 remixes for dance remixes and whatnot were only available on vinyl. You couldn't get them on CD. Hmm. And so I have a stash of those. Hmm. And I've got, you know, some of the other owners did the same thing. They were DJs and they've got Oop, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you know, boxes filled with with old with old records, mm -hmm. things that you just can't you can't get on CD. Of course, everybody by now has has transcoded them to you know native digital format, so you can you can access them any time. Access them any time. But uh, yeah, it, there there is an element. There's a social element that's missing now. It's yeah, and the reason <laughs> I like it 
I don't have that much vinyl. I probably have, I don't know, maybe 20 albums. But the reason I like it is because I guess until CDs came out in 82, 83, 84, somewhere in there. I think they were 81, very early, late 81, early 82, but yeah. Okay. Before then, when Zeppelin went into the studio, mm -hmm. they knew that they were going to have eight songs and they were going to have to have four on one side. Mm -hmm. and four on the other. Mm -hmm. And it was like a book. Mm -hmm. You had the opener, yep. then you had the filler, and then you had the thing that closed it. Right. And so it's, it's like- It's a three-act play. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. like you're really thinking, and now, I mean, I'm sure people who put out 12-song albums, you know, they think about where different things go, but mm -hmm. it's a different feel. And mm -hmm. when those four songs finish, mm -hmm. there's no more music. You have to walk into the living room, mm -hmm. flip it over, and start it again. Mm -hmm. And there's something so cool about that. Well, I mean, can you imagine being a band like Rush or even Ellen Parsons, right? Or, or even Pink Floyd, where you have these very long songs, like something off of Hemispheres or whatever. Um, you've when you've got a 12-minute song, like 21, uh, you know, 2112. You got a 12-minute song. You've got to make that fit in that yeah. in that period of time. And that's a, that's a challenge too. So you had to think about that. You couldn't just go, well, I'm going to write this song and I'm just going to write it however it is. It's like, well, this is, thing's got to be about four minutes. And, yeah. and so you had other constraints, but now it's like, you know, you can make a song that's 400 years long or yeah. four seconds long and it wouldn't matter. Uh -huh. It just takes up hard drive space. Yeah, exactly. So, but I, I do not miss the rumble and the pop and the hiss and yeah. the, the stuff that you have to deal with with the old, old recording technologies. I think from, from a recording perspective that having the digital medium is, um, from a fidelity perspective, is it's a good thing that we've got it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm happy that we do because it, we can do so much. I mean, it's, it's both good and bad. There's a, there was like a barrier to entry to writing music and producing music that you couldn't, um, there was, a, you had to have technical skills to be able to do it. And, now anybody with a laptop can do it. Yeah, that's good and bad. Yeah, it's great. It's good because um, it's available to everybody. And that used to be that the big recording studios had the lock on. You know, you want to make an album, you're gonna have to pay us lots of money and come in and use our gear and stuff like that, or else you had to make your own studio. Now everybody's a studio. Of course, there still is a case to be made for actual recording studios because of acoustics and stuff like that. Have you seen um, Dave Grohl's um, Sound City? I have not seen the whole thing, but I've watch seen pieces. It. Yeah. Watch it. It's a yeah. really good one. It, it, it underscores the kind of thing that they had. a the, the One of the rooms was apparently extremely good for recording drums, uh -huh. right? And that's the, the gist of it. Um, and there's so there's something still to be said about recording acoustically in, in an area like that and going to a good studio and, and the amenities and the environment and stuff. But now sitting on your laptop, you can sit there and make the greatest song ever in Fruity Loops, which is kind of cool. But it's also generates the amount of garbage. <laughs> well, it is kind of cool, but there's also, there's only so many chord progressions. There's only so many patterns that you can do. I think it depends upon the instrument, right? I mean, if you've got a bass guitar, you got a, you got a set of drums, you got a bass guitar, you got a, a rhythm guitar. Yeah, you're going to be kind of honed in just because the instruments are going to limit you. But if you have something like a synthesizer, that you can, you know, you can, you have samplers, you have synthesizers, you have drum machines. Those all can uh, your acoustic palette is much much wider with with those instruments. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people call them fake. I don't think any instrument is fake, 
I think all instruments are instrument. If it makes sound and makes music, it doesn't really matter to me how you how you accomplish it, right? There's like there's there's no nobility in that. But I can understand the draw of a really good sounding acoustic guitar or a really good bass or a great sounding drum set, right? But I've also heard people do some great things with electronics, you know, at the same time. So well, yeah, it, it's an emotional thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's not necessarily how much it cost or where it came from. It's how it makes you feel. And sometimes you could hear. Johnny Cash play a $40 guitar he found in a dumpster mm -hmm. and that could be way better than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that that's it, that's the it, there isn't a like a formula like you must do acoustic to do this or you if you use a synthesizer to do this it's bad. It's it's sort of like make it cool no matter what instrument you've got. Yeah. Do something unique with it. Make it yours. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I I I know what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, music, I I always have a tough time if I ever meet somebody who's like, oh yeah, I don't really like music. I'm like, what? Because I've met people like that before that just don't listen to anything. Mm -hmm. And that's so difficult to understand because there's so many different types. Mm -hmm. And I can understand not liking rap or not liking country or not liking metal, but mm -hmm. to just not listen to music at all. At all. That seems odd to me too. It's very odd because you get so much out of it. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't want to admit it, I mean, you could be, you could be in Target walking around and hear something on the overhead, mm -hmm. and it takes you back to being a six-year-old in your aunt's back seat. Like, there's so many memories associated with everything. Mm -hmm. it, there's no way for it to not be an emotional thing, or not to be an, not to impact you in some way. Yeah, yeah, I, I it. it I don't meet a lot of people that don't aren't really into music, but there's different types of people who are into music. There's musicians who are into music, and then there's the casual listener who is not musicians, but they really like the music. Well, sometimes yeah. they like the music because they like the music. Sometimes they like it because their friends like it. Yeah, right? it's a social thing. Um, you know, it's like certain there's certain bands like you know if you're a skateboarder in the '90s, you'd listen to Sonic Youth. Yeah, it's like why? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that was something that I never did. I was always I had a musician attitude towards it. I was appreciating the, the musical aspects of it. And there were certain things for the longest time that really did not pique my interest at all. Um, 90s music, grunge music did not at all. Really? And here's the interesting story. I became a retroactive fan of some of the 90s music, especially the grunge music, uh -huh. partially because I went to the Alan Parsons masterclass and I met a, several of the other musicians there that says, you're not giving it its due diligence. You need to sit down and listen to how good this stuff really is. Uh -huh. And it wasn't globally good, like nothing ever is. Um, but some of it is like, wow, I never really appreciated it when it came out. When it happened, was it just too popular and you didn't want to latch onto it or what? Well, I was, I was hoping for the electronic track. Right. I wanted I, Euro, Euro, European music became highly electronic. Um, and there was a whole Euro scene going on that was not in the United States at all. And I was hoping that was going to be popular because that was what I was interested in. That was, mm -hmm. you know, then again, I was listening to some industrial music in the late 80s. Um, and then grunge came along. And, and for me, it just made me mad because it's, it's all of a sudden all this honing your craft. Suddenly, you know, the music seemed very raw and it was like the barrier to entry was a lot lower. But what I didn't, I didn't listen closely enough. I didn't mm -hmm. give it enough due diligence to realize that, you know, these guys are really pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been, I've been retroactively... I've, I've had my new friends uh, point me in the direction, say, you really, Neil, you need to give this another go. Because mm -hmm. this is there's more to it here than you're giving your credit for. And they're right. 
Well, yeah, I mean, like Kurt Cobain was not a good guitarist, but he had so much raw emotion. Mm -hmm. Like, what did I say? Dave Grohl said, "Shouting nails." Right. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he's gargling glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Dave Grohl is a really damn good drummer. Yeah. The more I listen to it, and so I, I started listening to, I you know you you don't just suddenly go well I'm going to get the entire back catalog of of um, Pearl Jam you know yeah no I I started off and says okay well Soundgarden I kind of like you know like like Black Hole, Black Hole Sun I, I appreciate Nirvana started listening to uh, like Lithium uh -huh. on uh, from Nirvana uh -huh. um, it's like wow that's actually way better than I gave it credit for and the other thing was uh, watching uh, Sound Cities that that documentary uh -huh. that opened my my ears up a little bit okay more too. i need to go watch that yeah you really do because it, it it takes you all the way from the 70s you know from like the formation of fleetwood mac and they talk to uh tom petty and the heartbreakers of course mm -hmm. i've been a tom petty fan my my whole life always have liked him mm -hmm. um him and the band um and it it opened me up a little bit more like, you know what i need to go get rumors i need to go get fleetwood mac rumors i didn't have that album why do i not have fleet i'm a musician i don't have fleetwood mac well you know? some <laughs> like um there, there's some stuff that came out in the late 60s and 70s that I have heard so many times. You just never want to hear it again. I never want to hear it again. Mm -hmm. And they're incredible songs, mm -hmm. but I can't respect them because they've been on the radio a hundred times a day for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And that ruins it for you. Mm -hmm. And so I could see how some of that stuff would happen with the 90s stuff. Well, but then again... That's whatever you would listen to, whatever popular music was. I mean, there was stuff in the 80s. Like in the in the early 80s was my formation. That was my musical imprint, right? It, that's the stuff that the pop the stuff that's popular in the 80s in popular music was what I focused on. And then the mid-80s became hair bands, you know, the poison and the white snake and stuff like that. Um, I was a big Def Leppard fan. I was a big rat fan. I was not a poison or Hell white yeah. snake fan. <laughs> but then when when Pretty Hate Machine dropped in the late 80s. That was like, oh my God, this is, this is some, this is the start of something. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that was that. And then, you know, you listen to stuff like, uh, ministry, early ministry and, um, bands like that it was, that was like the formation. That was the, the, the creation of what we now kind of categorize as industrial. We, I think anytime there's something that happens for three or four or five years, when something new comes along, people are like, yes. Right. Cause but then again, what happened in the 90s? Grunge kind of fizzled out and then it got Backstreet Boys and 98 Degrees and then There were some like people that. that were happy about that. Really? <laughs> well, yeah. And then it turned into like the, the emo rock, like Nickelback and <laughs> Nickelback stained. is emo rock? Well, I mean like, I guess they're not emo, but it's more like, um, what am I looking for? New metal? <laughs> it's no, not really Nickel metal. Nickelback's not new no. metal. We're well, talking about like Stained and Linkin Park and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, yeah. Every five years, there's like some sort of like... Now there's no rock music. No, there really isn't. No, it doesn't exist. But anymore. there are there are some pretty good bands out there that that got completely overlooked. I, my 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 new friend that I met at the master class uh, introduced me a band called Spock's Beard. Mm -hmm. Okay, this it's, it's a reference to the old Star Trek, the original Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, they talk about Spock's beard. You know, in the in the alternate timeline when mm -hmm. it's this weird little goatee thing. And um, he says, "Yeah, you need to listen to this band because." This is going to sound familiar to you. So, okay, I listened to it. And I'm like, holy crap, this is yes. So, Prague, really damn good stuff done in the late 90s and early aughts. Mm -hmm. And there are bands out there, they're just harder to find now because they don't, 
there, there's more of them, yeah. right? And and it, you know we don't have a we don't have a, a content problem. We have a filtration problem. Yeah, you know we don't we it's it's hard to find them, but they're out there. Those rock bands are out there. Mm -hmm. They're just harder to find, and it's just not what mainstream is now. It's it's all you know. You've got the the producer that that the producer and the fifty other producers that all work on the same track, and it becomes this watered down, homogenized kind of boring, sa same sounding song as as all the other stuff on the radio, and it is unfortunate. Yeah, um, but with cheap laptops and stuff like that, you also get some incredible creativity that people would never see the light of day because they wouldn't have access to the tools to do it. And so I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a catch twenty two. Mm -hmm. It's good and bad. Yep, exactly. It's kind of like uh, gasoline, right? Is it good or bad? Well, it's good when you put it in a car to to take kids to school. It's bad when you throw it and light it on a fire and throw it through somebody's window, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's how it's applied. Yeah, for sure. Well, so what was that like? You said that Alan Parsons was essentially your hero. Mm -hmm. How did you, how were you able to be a part of his masterclass and hang out with him? I paid him money, <laughs> literally. Oh. Yeah. So it was, it was funny. I was, um, he'd been doing masterclasses for, for years, apparently. He'd been doing some stuff at Abbey Road. He'd, he'd done it at various studios around the world. Um, and he lives in Santa Barbara. Okay. So something came up, something came across my wire where it said, Alan Parsons masterclass you know, pay us money, you come up here and you get to mix down a song. You get to mix down and spend the day with him. And I was thinking, mm. I get to meet my hero. So there's a double-edged sword of that, that sometimes you meet the people that that uh, you think are great people and they turn out to not be people, but- Was he an asshole? No. Oh God, no. He is the nicest, kindest, sweetest guy on the planet. And the people that he keeps, his family, it, they're wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wonderful people. They're, they're, and every now and then you you come across people you want to be more like, that's him. He's hmm. as kind as you, it wouldn't say a disparaging thing about anybody. The entire time he's very open to listening to people and would would discuss and made you feel included. It was it was a really great experience. And so he has a he has a house and a studio up in the Santa Barbara Hills. It's it's way up there. It's like 2,000 feet. It's like six, seven miles up into the hills. It's a nice house and he's got a studio detached down below. And his swimming pool has the cover of the Eye of Ra, so which is on the cover of Eye in, Eye in the Sky, is in the bottom of the swimming pool. <laughs> and he's got the studio there, just this little kind of a shack. And it's got a really wonderful uh, Neve console, 5088 uh, console. And... Um, He's got a he's got a, a room and he's got a sound booth for guitars and vocalists and he's got a large assortment of microphones and uh, a way that you know can you can open up the back of the studio and come into the back and there's a little area off to the side where he works on his projects and stuff and so it's it's a it's a he, really neat place. He's still composing. He is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm hoping he's touring right now. I think huh. um, he just landed. I saw something on Facebook where he just landed in Germany to to do a show. But huh. um, but yeah, the first the first time I went to the master class. Um, I didn't stay for the acoustic recording. I only stayed, there two, it was a two day event. I didn't stay, I only went for the event for the, doing the mix down and they had the masters for Ammonia Avenue, the album. Okay. And that has, so we did the mix down of Ammonia Avenue, Prime Time and Don't Answer Me. These and, are all albums he's produced and put out. Um, those are songs off the Ammonia Avenue album. Okay. So wait a minute, wait a minute. He took what had been recorded previously and let you guys mix it the way you wanted to. Yep. Okay. So you had 
on the faders, yep. guitar, mm -hmm. kick drum, mm -hmm. snare drum, and you could change the mix essentially. Yep. Exactly. And mm -hmm. so I, I, Alan said, you know, when he was kind of done doing, doing a rough of Don't Answer Me, and it was interesting to see him work and the way he was mixing. Because typically when I see most people, most producers mix, they start with the bass and drums. Mm -hmm. Okay. Alan's exactly the opposite. He almost always starts with guitars. He starts with the guitar work, then he adds instrumentation, then he adds vocal work, and then the drums and the and the 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 drums and the bass guitar are the last thing he adds in. And I asked him, "Why do you do that?" He says, "That's what makes it rock and roll. Hmm. That's what brings it to life." And I thought that was kind of an interesting way of thinking about it because every time I've done mixes on my own songs, um, it's always been with. Uh, starting with, with like a, a beat, starting with a groove, right? And and building on top of that. And what I've found by going back after I've got that information from Alan, I went back and listened to my old songs thinking, you know, I focused on the wrong things, mm -hmm. right? So it was a it was an eye opener to me. Well, the insane challenge of mixing anything, whether it's your work or someone else's, is there's only so much space you can fit stuff. Mm -hmm. And what I was taught when I went to school is that you cut frequencies that you, you cut different frequencies from the guitar to allow the bass to enter or to allow the vocals to enter. Or you've got a fundamental on the bass that needs to sit right where that guitar is right on top of it or yeah, something. You or can't just different. you can't just have everything mm -hmm. giving from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. You can't have all of that open because then it's just mud. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like garbage. You have to notch out little spots yep. so things can fit in. And it's so insanely difficult because you'll sit there and you'll listen to it and you'll get it sounding awesome. And then you'll go take it out to your car and listen to sure, it. It sounds terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so disappointing. Well, the interesting, you, you've touched on something very interesting. And that's one of the things I noticed about Alan's um, style is when he's mixing things, he's adding things and he's doing a little EQ tweak, little ETU tweak. He, he uses almost no com no uh, compression at all. Hmm. He says on compression, the only thing he uses it on is a little bit on the bass and a little bit on um, vocals. Hmm. And it's just, just take the top off, right? But that's the reason, part of the reason why a lot of the old Alan Parsons albums, especially Stereotomy, that was one of the albums that came out in 1986. That album has incredible transients and it's a great sounding from a drum perspective. It just hits really hard, but he wants to keep the life in it. He says, you, you compress it. And there's been a shift in the way people record. And this is something Alan mentioned to me too, is he said that there's the, the shift, it used to be that what you do is you'd add things in slowly, right? You kind of bring it up to where it needs to be. Now it's throw it all in and then back it down. And there's an element of evenness to Alan's mixes that, that are so pure you can hear everything. There's the, nothing steps on each other. This gets back to what we're talking about as far as, you know, adding notch filters and things like that and, and doing slight EQ and whatnot to, to allow instruments to sit together. But when he puts it all together, it all just seems to go together. And you look at the tweaks that he makes on his, on his, on his console for the, for the different EQs, it's all really minor changes. Hmm. It's like taking a little off the top here. And I'm certain that's because he grew up in an era where equipment you know, you had to, you, you didn't have the ability to bring up, uh, you know, massive plugins and things like that that you've got today. You didn't have those tools. And so mm -hmm. you had to learn the craft the other direction. And that's, it's, it's kind of like the difference between having machines making, doing woodworking or metalwork or doing it yourself. And um, when he was mixing, don't answer me, that's an, that's an interesting song because he was trying to go for a Phil Spector kind of wall of sound. You know, he's a, Producer, he worked at Abbey Road as well too, quite a bit. And um, "Don't Answer Me" was he, he. They almost scrapped the track because they were not. 
they didn't like the way it sounded. Mm -hmm. So Alan tried a different approach. He said, well, let's, let's try to just make this a wall of sound. And I got, when he said, do you want to come up and mix this down? I was like, yep, I'll come. <laughs> so I come up there. The first thing I did is I wanted to find out what all the tracks were. And half of what I were, were recorded, like little simple things like um, a bass drum or a tom or not a snare, but a, a um, tambourine mm -hmm. was in there. I'm like, I never heard all this stuff before. And it makes up the wall of sound, but you can't hear it individually. Yeah. And it was just it, the, the, the evenness. And the second masterclass we did was all Al Stewart, if you know who he is. Have you heard the Year of the Cat? Gospel singer? Year of the Cat. Yeah, he's a folk singer. Okay. He's a very, very talented guy. Um, have you heard the Year of the Cat? Uh-uh. Um, yeah, Year of the Cat. Anyway, Year of the Cat is probably his most famous song, but that was produced by Alan Parsons. And they were, they were friends uh, when they were at Abbey Road. Hmm. And we got to mix down three... Uh, Al Stewart songs. And that was a treat for me because I was an Al Stewart fan too. Mm -hmm. And I later figured out in retrospect that, wait a minute, all these people that I really like all have the same roots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, well, what was that like hanging out with? How many people were there? Oh, probably about 15 to 20. 15 to 20 people who paid X amount of money to hang out with Alan Parsons. Mm -hmm. None of those people just kind of liked Alan Parsons. They all really liked him. So he's all like, he's basically hanging out with 15 super fans and showing them how we recorded stuff. Well, not really fans, yes, meaning, but but that's not the primary thing. So for example, the, the friends that I made there were independent musicians. One of them was a business director who happened to love Alan Parsons and he wanted to know more about recording. Uh -huh. um, we found people who were uh, professors of music. Mm -hmm. We had We had one... Uh, young lady there who was sitting there and, and she had no idea who he was. <laughs> Seriously. What? She was told by her music folk that this is a show, this is something you ought to go do. You ought to go to this masterclass. And they, 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 she knew that he was famous, but didn't have any idea hmm. how prolific he was. Hmm. And, <laughs> and it was, it was like, you know, have you heard this song? Yeah, I've heard that song. Oh, it's him. Really? You know, that's sort of little epiphanies that you kind of had to tie it together. But then again, that's a that's an age thing. You know, if if you're you know you you're you're probably you didn't grow up with Alan Parsons. Mm -hmm. I did. Well, and, yeah, and like you said before, <laughs> he was an engineer on Dark Side of the Moon, right? Yes, he was. Yeah, so he was involved in a lot of stuff mm -hmm. prior to becoming. I mean, when did he start releasing music in the 75, 80s? 75, 75, yeah. Okay. So Tales of Mystery Imagination was seventy five, and then there was uh, you know uh, you've heard songs like Games People Play. He also has another album, an iconic album called iRobot. Okay. Have you heard that? I, I don't know specifically, but I'm sure I've heard a bunch of stuff. It's brilliant. Yeah. It really is. It yeah. just, I'm, I've always, those are, those are for me, groundbreaking albums and uh -huh. stuff. And um, the other interesting thing was um, going to that event gave me a really good appreciation for the contribution that the Beatles made mm -hmm. to, to not only just to music, but, and, and how many people they inspired to also how, um, uh, yeah, how many people they inspired. And also the thing that I didn't know was how much the Beatles had advanced recording technology and be, me being as a producer, I should have wanting to be a producer. I should have known that, but yeah. I didn't. Yeah. We were talking beforehand about Jeff Emmerich, who mm -hmm. was their engineer for a bunch of the early albums. He quit. He quit during the White Album, I believe, because things got so uh, tumultuous, and then he came back for some of Abbey Road. But he did a majority of, if I remember correctly, he did Rubber Soul, he did um, uh, Revolver, 
magic. He did parts of Magical Mystery Tour. He he was heavily involved with all that stuff. Was he like part of Sergeant Pepper's as well? He too? was on Sergeant Pepper's okay. as well. Yeah. So he was just this young kid who worked inside Abbey Road, and Abbey Road was a very strict environment where. Everybody had different color coats depending on what department they worked in. <laughs> and if you wanted to move the fridge from there to there, you had to call in this other department mm -hmm. with a brown coat. And mm -hmm. then they would move it. And then if you needed toilet paper, you'd have to call in the yellow coat. Like everybody had a different coat and you couldn't just do stuff. Yeah, that's English bureaucracy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they had the Beatles in there and the Beatles exclusively went to Abbey Road. That's where they started. Mm -hmm. That's where they blew up. And then Beatlemania happened, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And over time, uh, Lennon and McCartney are like, why do we have to ask permission? We are making you a retarded amount of money. Uh -huh. Like do whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. And he would start breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. And that's when they started challenging all the normal conventions of recording and like we were talking about earlier, started doing all these things differently mm -hmm. and totally just changed the course of music. And uh, that those songs are so fascinating to listen to because most of them sound like shit. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. they're- or Because 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 the old, old equipment and just processes yes. hadn't been invented yes, yet. because they had four tracks mm -hmm. on a lot of those and they were- Some were mono. Yeah. And early, the early Beatles albums are all mono. They would record drums and bass or they, they would record three tracks. Mm -hmm. So then they only had one left. Mm -hmm. So then they would bounce the those three mm -hmm. to the open one. Mm -hmm. So then all that stuff is is yeah. printed forever. You yeah, can't change yeah. any of you it. You can't unpee in that pool. No. no. <clears throat> so the fact that they only had four and now you can record six million tracks mm -hmm. on one song. Mm -hmm. The, and the it was, oh, just did. add another track, yeah. yeah well, no. it was, Alan was telling some, some interesting stories that, that when he was uh, trying to do some of the Alan Parsons project stuff, and the drum tracks would take up five tracks. And um, um, drummer would say, hey, I'd like to do another take. He goes, nope, you don't have the tracks, sorry. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was, is that one exact thing? And I don't know that if Alan ever, I never broached the topic of, of discussing um, bouncing and stuff like that, but I'm sure he, of course he knows what it is. I'm certain he did it, He's, but he did tell some stories about uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination, how the, they, they had done so many overdubs that the tapes had fallen apart. Yeah. And they had to like make backups of things. And then of course they degrade over time. Yep. Um, the funniest story that he told me was, was a Alan, we were sitting there at a, at a, on a picnic table outside his studio. I'm sitting next to one of the other guys who made the equipment that uh, Alan was using. It's one of the pieces of equipment, I think it was his uh, audio, audio interface. And um, we were discussing slew rate and rise time and all sorts of stuff. And Alan's listening to all this stuff. And he looks over and he goes, what language are you speaking? <laughs> said fluent geek. <laughs> the other the stories that he would tell that Alan would tell were just fascinating about the time when they when they were having a mixer. Uh, George Martin was getting a mixer delivered uh, to him apparently on his houseboat or something. Mm -hmm. And when they're delivering the mixer, it, it came loose and landed in the Atlantic. And they managed to save it. Um, the other one was uh, Tim Rice that you know, we get back to the bureaucracy that we're talking about. You know, uh -huh. why does everything so structured and stuff like that? Um, Tim Rice, who's a, um, you know, he's a show guy. Uh -huh. He did he did things like chess and whatnot. He did a song for BBC, I think it was. And they had a limit, a strict limit of something like four minutes or three minutes or something. Um, he submitted a song. It was three minutes and five seconds. And they rejected it. They said it's over three minutes. So he resubmitted it as 
three minutes and 60, two minutes and 65 seconds in it, it was accepted. <laughs> he says, but Alan was many times it said that bureaucracy was, was a, was a very common thing in the, in the entertainment world at that time. Mm -hmm. And probably still to some degree, because lots of movies in the eighties dealt with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fan of rules. I mean, rules are good for breaking and usually the people that choose to break the rules are the ones who do something extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, rules, yeah, it depends, it depends upon the context, right? I mean, don't, don't run somebody over with your car yes. is, is a good rule. Yes. Right? But, you know, never, never record a bass with a, with an acoustic or something. Yeah. That's, that's a, you know, music should be com a completely wide open thing. There should be yeah. no rules. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I think that's a good spot. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Yep. It's been fun.